This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, or as I prefer to call him, Jimothy. Today, we are going to be talking about the patristics. We're going to be uh, conversing with the church fathers. So, Jimmy, you want to say hi before we go ahead and get into this episode and this topic? Hello. All right. Well, thank you for that formal introduction of yourself. Uh, Jimmy, for our first question, what do we mean whenever we say patristics? What do we mean by patristics and who are we talking about and why are we talking about them? Well, when we say the word or the term patristics, we, we are talking about what more oftentimes or in more popular terms is are those men who are called the early church fathers. And the dates that they, they span are from the first century AD after or to the sixth century AD. And we're talking about them because, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but because we believe that God spoke by his Holy Spirit, through the scriptures to men and women during that time, just as he continues to do now, and that those men mostly, and some women during that time, wrote some things that I believe would be edifying and encouraging for us, as well as they they just help us to, to better understand our God as he has revealed himself. All right, well, you already alluded to it, so we'll go ahead and just keep the ball rolling. Why should a Christian read about this era of church history? And what are some difficulties of learning about this time period? So I'll start off my answer by saying that not everyone or not every Christian needs to read about this era or needs to read the church fathers. Um, Not everyone needs to be a church historian or an expert in it, but I would say that it's of interest and particularly of interest to pastors or theologians for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, the formal recognition of the New Testament canon came during this time. That's not to say that the canon was not already recognized, but that it was formally um, declared and recognized during this time period. The doctrine of the Trinity, as well as the doctrine of Christ, or doctrines of Trinity and Christ, were both formulated during this time. Uh, particularly those prior to Nicaea provide examples of living in a hostile culture, so that's a value for now. And then we also see how early Christians defend the faith against heresy, as well as false religion. Um, the fathers, by and large, were very Christocentric, 
and therefore they aid us in reading the scriptures and bearing witness to Christ and also preaching Christ from all of scripture. The As I said earlier, the Spirit of God spoke through the Word of God in their time as he does in ours. So again, they, they're valuable to, to glean from for that reason. And then also a couple of things that have stuck out to me, and, and we'll dive into this later also, is they call us to theological humility and, and realizing our finitude and our humanity in comparison to the magnitude and the infinity of God. And thus, they, they call us to have faith even in the face of divine mystery. And then also, they help us to reevaluate our own presuppositions, and culture, and blind spots. The second part of your question is, what are some difficulties of learning about them? Well, there, there are many. Um, one, there's a lot of false propaganda about the early church, that it was chaotic, that there was no uniformity of doctrine, that they had no conception of the canon. So going back to them and actually studying them helps to to kind of get rid of those false conceptions, but it also makes it difficult because you have a lot of people saying a lot of different things about the fathers, and, and a lot of it's not true. We also don't have all the writings from that time period. Um, and we, and some that we have, especially the earlier we go back, um, we don't have full writings. Instead, we have quotations from other authors. And, and so you don't always get a full picture of what's going on. For example, if there's a controversy and so-and-so is writing against someone else, you may just have what has been written against that person and not actually what that person themselves wrote. So that, that makes it kind of difficult. Another obvious reason that it's difficult for us in, in our day and age, and particularly in English-speaking America, is that a lot of these works still remain untranslated. And even those that are translated, um, some of the translations are pretty old, and just the writing style of the fathers is different than ours. There's a lot less organization um, in, in their writings. Um, not always, but they don't have as formal of outlines or chapter outlines as as we do. And sometimes they, they didn't have editors of their work. So sometimes they chase rabbits or what we would call rabbits, although I think even those rabbits have a great deal of value. Also, another difficulty in studying the church fathers is that their culture is different than ours, as well as that they had different assumptions than we did, as well as different types of educations and different types of ways of talking and thinking than we commonly do. So therefore, in order to understand some of the fathers and some of the things they wrote, it does require that we have some understanding of classical philosophy as well as the time period in which they lived and wrote. Um, and then the last two reasons that I, I have listed here that make them difficult is many of their writings are situational, as I alluded to. They, they write against something, and we may not have the backdrop of that, but rather what they wrote. Um, and then also, in our day and age, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery is what makes the fathers difficult. Sometimes the fathers do not have what we would deem the scientific knowledge that we do, and thus 
they aren't worth reading, or we might assume that, and I believe we assume that wrongly. Uh, whenever I asked you why a Christian should read about this era of the church or the fathers, uh, you mentioned that by and large, the fathers were very Christocentric, and they aid us in reading the scriptures as bearing witness to Christ. Um, would you give us a brief overview of some of the hermeneutical distinctives or approaches that some of the patristics used to be able to preach, preach Christ from the Bible? Yeah, but before I, I give a very brief exposition or explanation of these things or description, I, I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to the two episodes that we did with Craig Carter, who wrote the book Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, and he goes into a lot lot greater detail on these things than I do, and I have another book listed later that does the same thing. But I mean, some examples would be allegorical exegesis, so um, seeing things um, that are below the surface or or seeing illustrations in the Old Testament of what Christ would do, maybe what we would call typological exegesis, um, and then also more technical things like prosopological exegesis, and I may have mispronounced that, and I don't want to too carefully define it because I, I'm still a novice in trying to figure these things out. And then finally, the rule of faith. and, and particularly things like the apostolic creed or those creeds of that time, they believed that those things guided the interpretation of Scripture, and and a lot of those creeds are Christocentric, and they believed, as Jesus himself taught, that all of Scripture bears witness to him, either in types, shadows, metaphors, allegories, or he himself is speaking prophetically through one of the prophets in the Old Testament, which would be prosopological exegesis, particularly in the Psalms when David is speaking. Some would postulate during that time that that Christ is actually speaking through David, and David is being a conduit for that speech, and he's testifying to himself. So that would be kind of a uh, a list, a brief explanation of some of the things that they delve into. Let's move on to our next topic. Um, a common caricature of Christianity is that Christians weren't actually Trinitarians until the Council of Nicaea in 325. Uh, so how do the patristics help us respond to such an accusation? Well, I I just watched a video of, of Muslims saying this very thing, as well as you'll have some oneness Pentecostals who, who suggest such a thing, and it, it's simply just false. I mean, and, and studying the patristics, one, helps us to go back and see, well, there are people even a century before Nicaea or more defending what we would identify as the Trinitarian doctrine that was formulated in greater detail and with greater clarity at the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople. Um, As well as, I mean, another reason why this is just a caricature is because the New Testament is blatantly Trinitarian um, throughout. I mean, 
beginning in the Gospels and beginning with the coming of Christ, the the Trinity is revealed. Um, he, the Father, um, through the Holy Spirit, um, brought about the incarnation of the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The baptismal formula at the end of Matthew is is Trinitarian. Baptize them in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Revelation, there are triads that appear throughout the book of Revelation referring to the Godhead and and many other examples that we could give from Scripture that, that give us the concept of the Trinity, that there is one God who is eternally Etern- co-eternal, or there is one God with three co-eternal or co-equal and co-equal persons. So scripture, one, disproves that caricature, and two, by going back and reading people like Tertullian and and others who predate Nicaea, you can begin to see that there were, in fact, Trinitarians before Nicaea. And and also, I mean, it's not like Nicaea just dropped out of the sky. There were clearly people that believed it before the council actually happened. Otherwise, the council wouldn't have taken place. The council hammered out things. It did not formulate new things. And you can go back and read Athanasius, and who was alive during that time, and, and others who shortly followed him. So, yeah, that is a caricature that's patently false, and it can be proven both by studying Scripture and looking at the early church fathers. Well, we've been having this conversation about uh, the church fathers, the patristics. Um, To the Christian that has never read or heard about the patristics, what would you recommend that they should read first or who they should read first? Yeah, I would recommend Augustine, um, and particularly his work, The Confessions. That would be a good starting point at at seeing um, both some of the doctrine and and the theology um, and the thought of the Church Fathers, as as well as seeing the piety and and the way they practice their faith. Since the Confessions throughout is a sustained prayer, Augustine writing his prayer to God, walking through a story, and then later walking through the early chapters of Genesis, talking about memory and things like that. He covers all kinds of things in the Confessions, but the Confessions is a good place to start with the Church Fathers. Um, Augustine's other writings, some of them are definitely more difficult, like on the Trinity. I wouldn't recommend starting there, but on Christian teaching is another one, on the instruction of beginners in the faith. In fact, on our blog, I have a blog article that that is kind of talking about some of the things that that are within that book. Also, if you are a preacher or a pastor, I, I recommend reading his commentaries on the Psalms. Um, he also has a harmony of the Gospels that's that's worth looking at. Another one would be, and I'm going to butcher his last name, and I'm bad with names, and Austin can, can testify that I'm bad at pronouncing names. So how about you pronounce this guy's name, Austin? I've always heard it's John Chrysostom. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. He he's got expositions and sermons and homilies that you can find. Athanasius would be another one to look up and read his book on the incarnation. Um, 
it's a good book. It, it's not very long. In fact, I would say that about a majority of the father's works, not all of them, but a majority of the father's works are not terribly long. And you sometimes you can read them in one sitting on the incarnation is a little bit long, probably for one sitting, but it's not long. Hillary um, of Poiters um, on the Trinity is another good work. Um, I've been reading it right now and, and he's pretty accessible and, and in many ways, Augustine's work is a fuller explanation of what is found in Hillary's on the Trinity. You have the Cappadocians, you have Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nessa, Basil of Caesarea, um, Gregory of Nazianzus, theological orations, 27 through 31, that would be on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it's, at least for a nerd like me, it was a front, fun read, but it's worth looking into. Again, not long. You could probably read it in a couple of sittings. If if that, you could probably read it in one. Gregory of Nessa on the Holy Spirit, a couple on the Holy Trinity, and then on three gods. You can guess what these guys like to write about because the controversies of their days directed them to write a lot about the Trinity and 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 the doctrine of God. I I know that. Some of the Cappadocians, um, they had some writings on divine attributes like divine simplicity. Also, I haven't read them, so I can't rec recommend them yet, but I'm sure they're great. Um, and then Basil wrote on the Holy Spirit. Um, you can also pick up the ancient Christian commentaries on Scripture. I believe it's InterVarsity Press is who published those. And you kind of get an anthology of of church fathers engaging specific scripture passages split up in the books of the Bible. So that would be a good place to start. You can read their expositions of scripture, or at the very least, their their citation of scriptures to defend a particular doctrine that they are that they are arguing for. And then I mean, my list is obviously very short. The fathers wrote a lot, but Matthew Barrett on his his website, Credo Mag or Credo Mag, um, has a full list, and he goes by beginner, intermediate, and advanced, and you can just start at beginner and read all the way to the advanced. He also has, in that same article, he has uh, talking about the medieval theologians, those that, that come after the church fathers, so that would be a good place to start if you're really curious, and then you can find maybe some topics that you might be more interested in, but I like to read about the Trinity, so a lot of my stuff that I have read is on the Trinity in particular. Well, thank you for that. Uh, those were Jimmy's primary source recommendations, and before we move on to some secondary works on the patristics, uh, which patristics interest you the most? You, you said you like to read a lot on the Trinity. Which ones have you been reading recently and... Uh, want to lead us in this part of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I should have prefaced the podcast with this. I in no way claim to be an expert on the Church Fathers. I'm, I'm writing as a fellow, or I'm speaking as a fellow pilgrim who, who's just beginning to delve into them more. I mean, I've who I've read mostly would be Augustine, because I took a class on Augustine with Michael Haken. I really enjoyed his work on the Trinity. I really enjoyed Confessions. Um, and then I've read portions out of the City of God. Augustine just wrote 
tons, as well as we have tons of his sermons. And we have a lot of what Augustine contributed to theology. Augustine is a giant in church history, and I, I think it would be valuable to any preacher or pastor or theologian or even Christian to, at the very least, read the confessions. Um, other guys I've been reading, I've been reading the guys I've mentioned. I've been reading the Cappadocians. I, I've read all those those things that that I mentioned above or just a few moments ago. I, I would recommend them. They're, they're worth reading. You may not understand everything that they're saying, but you will glean some, some good truths from it. Right now, I'm reading Hillary's On the Trinity. I have found it to be very helpful. And having read Augustine's On the Trinity, um, reading Hillary has actually helped me to understand the things that I read in Augustine, because Augustine assumes some things that we find in Hillary. So I, I would recommend going and reading Hillary. It's not as long as Augustine's work on the Trinity. It's still in some parts very dense and and you have to follow his argument and and there's longer sentences than what we're we're used to in modern day writing but i mean there's so many church fathers um and so many of them wrote about a wide variety of different things but those are the guys I've mostly been dealing with, guys that were involved in the Arian as well as other Trinitarian controversies. I've read Tertullian against Praxis, who was a, a modalist. Um, well, Tertullian wasn't, but Praxis, the guy that he is writing against, was a modalist. So he was debating against him. I mean, you can go and read uh, Justin Martyr um, in his dialogue with Trif. Trifo the the Jew, which I haven't been able to read, but it sounds fascinating. And you'd see an early Christian engagement after the time of the apostles with Judaism of their day. So I think that would be worth reading about. I've read Cyprian on on the nature of the true church or the unity of the church, and that that was very fascinating and interesting. Obviously, there will be some disagreements um, between me as a Baptist and, and Cyprian during that time period. But by and large, I, I found a lot that I could agree with and I think is good counsel for us for us to 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 hold to the Catholicity of of the Christian church, the unity of the Christian church. Although we have various streams and traditions that we do follow, there is only one true church, um, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a unity among those things which are essential to the Christian faith, those things which we find in those early creeds. So, I mean, I, I'm just rambling now, but... <laughs> That's kind of a list of the guys I've been reading and I've I've found fascinating and and helpful. All right, well, let's move on to secondary works then, uh, mm -hmm. and perhaps we can link to these primary works and secondary works in the show notes. But uh, what secondary works on the patristics would you recommend? Um, for an overall history, two thousand years of Christ's power, uh, volume one by Nick Needham. I've actually been reading it. I mean, I've read other overviews of church history, and I've found Nick Needham's to be accessible, as well as it has a devotional component to it. It's thoroughgoingly Christian and reads history from a Christian vantage point. Um, I know Austin mentioned before the episode that he's been 
reading Rediscovering the Church Fathers by Michael Haken. I have not personally read it, but I've had Michael Haken as a professor and and a professor on church history and and at least one church father and I gleaned a lot from that one class, so I have no doubt that that book is is excellent. Um, another resource that I've actually been reading little articles on recently is the Great Tradition Patristic Edition of Credo Magazine. Um, they have short biographies of several of the church fathers that I've mentioned in in this podcast already, as well as some engagement with some of their thought and and its bite size, and it might be a good companion to read as you begin to read these primary sources. So if you read Hillary, go and read the the biography and a little bit of an explanation of his thought on St. Hillary. Um, but it's a great resource. We can link to that definitely in the show notes. I believe Austin has to read this next work for his class on hermeneutics. Um, yeah, The Letter yeah, and the Spirit. I've, I've finished this book. Yeah, yeah, it's a good book. I, I've read it too. I read it a while back, but it, it was definitely informative and and it helped me to understand a lot of things that I didn't understand. And, and it helped me to overcome some of the caricatures of the church fathers and their approach to scripture that I had been spoon-fed and, and, and unwittingly believed. Another book that Austin, I know, either has read or is going to read for class. Actually, I think he's been reading it. He's been quoting it on Twitter, is Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition by Craig Carter. That is an excellent book. Um, one of the books that is most single-handedly um, in recent years helped shape the way that I, I look at the scriptures and I, I read the scripture. So I, I heavily commend Craig Carter's book, as well as the episodes that we have done with him, both the the discussion that he had with Chris Bolt, but also the the ones on the great tradition and and um, Christian Platonism. So, and then another book that I've been reading lately that is not for the faint of heart. It's well written um, and and not super hard to read, but it, you have to want to think to to read this book, especially if you're not as familiar with classics. And that is When Athens Met Jerusalem by John Reynolds. This book was recommended by Craig Carter, and it's kind of an overview of classic philosophy from before Socrates all the way to Aristotle, as well as some of the Christian engagement with the ideas that were thought of by these these classical philosophers. So it is it is a fascinating book for a nerd like me. And if you want to kind of have a better idea of some of the terminology that you'll find in the Church Fathers, as well as some of the assumptions that many of them had and, and many of the terms that they use and sometimes changed the the meaning behind them, that's a good book to look at. So there's there's a whole host of recommendations that, depending on how fast you read, it might take you a whole year to get through. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, in this last section, we're going to move on to encouragements that you would give. If it's if it's okay with you, Jimmy, would it be all right if I offered one encouragement or at least yeah uh, something that I recently came across uh, when I was reading uh, Michael Haken's book that you recommend recommended uh, rediscovering the Church Fathers. I read it Saturday evening before this last Lord's Day, and Haken was going over Antioch or uh, Ignatius of Antioch and his martyrdom. Uh, that in his 
letter that he wrote to the church at Rome before he faced his martyrdom. And um, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but uh, reading some of the personal things that the fathers endured encouraged me as part of that great tradition to just press on for the kingdom. So I want to offer that as an encouragement to you as you uh, begin to read some of the difficulties that these patristics went through. Jimmy, can you offer us some more encouragements? Yeah, the I alluded to this earlier. Um, theological humility is, is one encouragement, and I actually wrote an article on my reading of the Trinity and particular on the Trinity by Augustine and partic- a particular portion on it. Um, and theological humility is just, as I stated earlier, realizing who we are and who God is, realizing the chasm between us and God and, and the grace on his part that is required for us to even begin to apprehend certain things about him. And, and, and really, we can only understand or come to understand and apprehend those things which he has revealed either in nature or in his word. And, and I think humility among theologians is, and, and particularly pastor theologians, which I'll, I, that's my next point, is, is very, very important. Realizing that we, we are explaining and describing the mystery of God as best as we can. That is the mystery of God as he was revealed himself um, most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ, as it is, as he is portrayed in Holy Scripture. As we describe these things and seek to explain these things, we must be humble, and we must do it by faith and not by our own power or by wisdom that comes from within, but rather by wisdom that comes from above. So as we study these church fathers, you'll find over and over again almost a lament that they have to explain these deeper things of God. Um, Reading Hillary, Augustine does it too on the Trinity, basically saying that they wish they didn't have to write about these things that are impossible to explain with human words, but they must write in order to combat the heretics who have written false things about God. So they are responding um, with a great deal of humility and almost a great deal of angst. Um, and though that be true, they they are doing it devotionally. Um, and I'll get into that. Another point and encouragement that I would that I have gleaned from the church fathers is the need, and I've said this before, that when doing biographies on on the Baptist guys that we've talked about, is the need for pastor theologians. Um, there has been, I, I don't know when it happened, I know Craig Carter has tweeted about it, I know other guys have tweeted about it, there has been a chasm that's developed between the Christian academy and the local church, the pastorate and the seminary, and there is a need for pastor theologians. And and when we begin to study the church fathers and we read the early creeds, one thing that you may forget is that most of these men were pastors, that their main vocation was preaching to God's people. I mean, when you read Augustine's work on the city of God and on the Trinity and even the confessions, and you don't read any of his sermons, you've kind of missed a major part of him. That's what he did the most. He, he preached the word of God to the people of God, and he wrote these great works, these vast works, like on 
um, the city of God and on the Trinity as a pastor because he was concerned for the truth and, and the souls of the people who God had put under his care. And, and we see the, the pastor theologian as a reality in history. It, it goes almost all the way until really the modern era and the modern academy. And, and that's not to say that there is no place for, for academic theologians. There certainly is, but there is, I would dare to say, more of a need, um, and, and I might catch fleck for that, but more of a need for pastor theologians. One, because there's just simply going to be more pastors than there are going to be professional academics. And also, it's the pastors who are dealing more so directly with the flock and with the church of God. So we need pastor theologians, and we see this exemplified time and time again in the church fathers. Another encouragement is to keep Christ the center. Um, and, and that's what the fathers did. They did it in their writing. They did it in their preaching. If you go back and read liturgies during this time, Christ is at the center. People need to behold and know and believe on Christ um, for their salvation, and and Christ is to be at the center of it all. Another thing um, is a love of truth for its own sake. Um, there is kind of an animosity in in the church in certain um, church traditions. Um, I would even say more so in ours, Austin, of a almost a disdain for contemplating truth just to contemplate truth. Um, there almost always has to be a practical of a side of what shall I do? Um, and, and the application can't just be behold this reality, um, behold this truth, bask in the glory of God as he has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at his mercy, look at his grace, look at his power. There is a, almost a disdain or a, a yawn that, that people give to such um, preaching or teaching or or thinking about the Christian life, but I believe that there is value for the Christian, whether it be the layman or the pastor, to just simply delight and love truth, um, and to love the one who is truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and simply to meditate upon his person as well as his work, and not always jump straight to what do I need to do. Of course, there is duty, and we learn that in the church fathers also, that we should pursue holiness, um, but still a love for truth. Um, another point or encouragement that we gather from the fathers, or I have, is a love for the church Catholic. Um, not the Roman Catholic Church, the church universal. Um, we should love the church, and Jesus died for the church, and we should love it, and therefore when we go to battle about theology and 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 truth we we go to battle not only for for just these abstract concepts but because we love souls and we love the souls that make up the church so we go to battle for souls and and not just because we like to be nerds and read abstract theological books we 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 pursue truth and we seek to explain it because we we love God and then we also love the church. And then one encouragement um, for someone desiring to learn about the fathers is just read with patience. I mean, you don't have to get through all of them. You never will. You'll never read every single thing the church fathers have written. So 
read with patience, take your time. I mean, I, after my quiet time and time in the scriptures and, and, and prayer, I, I go and, and I read just five, five paragraphs usually of, of a church father and, and just work my way through it. And a lot of their paragraphs are numbered. So you can just read five of them and then pick up where you left off the next day. So, I mean, read with patience and, and take your time. And just, if you come across something that's deep, just sit in it and, and ponder it and read the scriptures that they're citing and, and think through why, why did they cite this passage? Because sometimes it, it may not appear, um, it, it may not be immediately clear as to why they cite it. Now, now I will say this, that the church fathers are not scripture, and therefore there are times that they are wrong about things, undoubtedly. Um, we can correct them and, and disagree with them, and that's, that's okay. That doesn't make them not converted in their day and age, but it's okay to disagree from time to time with the fathers, and even to disagree with particular interpretations that they might have of passages. I, I am not as comfortable with some of the allegorical connections that some of the church fathers take from time to time. However, even when I disagree, maybe with that approach to the text, there is still almost always something to be gleaned from, from the allegory um, and, and the approach that they have. So uh, read them slow, read them with patience, read them with humility, but I guess lastly, read them critically and read them um, and compare them up against the scripture as, as you should anyone who writes, whether it be the reformers, a middle-aged, or um, medieval theologian, or, or even your, your own pastors and shepherds and modern writers today. So read them um, up against the scriptures and compare what they say with what God's word says. And, and they would encourage you, if they were alive today, to do the same thing. In fact, Augustine does it over and over again in On the Trinity. So that would be some of my encouragements. Um, Austin, in some of your brief time of reading, rediscovering um, the Church Fathers, or also the, the book that I mentioned, two books that I mentioned earlier, is there any encouragements that you've gained just from either the quotations that you find in the books or... or or just the the explanation of how they approach God in Scripture. Uh, kind of put me on the spot here a little bit, but <laughs> that's good. Um, I think you kind of alluded to it in this love for the Church Catholic. Um, we've had previous episodes on creeds and confessions, and how Jimmy and I are not biblicists. We recognize that we are a part of this church of all ages. So I'm very encouraged to hear uh, the orthodox, doc, orthodox doctrines come out through these writings as I read them aloud, as I'm trying to work through them slowly and patiently. Uh, Jimmy mentioned that he's a pilgrim and a learner. I'm even a slower and a pilgrim and a learner right now, having read far less than, than Jimmy has. But I desire to learn from uh, these men of God because I recognize that I as someone that confesses orthodox doctrines of the Christian faith, am united to these brothers and few sisters that we don't have as much writings from. So I am greatly encouraged of the theological tradition that I come from. I guess that would be an encouragement that I have. Amen. So um, we, we appreciate you 
listening to this conversation that we've had today on conversing with the church fathers. We will make sure to link some of these recommendations in the show notes. Uh, but Jimmy, I want to thank you today for taking your time to prep this podcast. And I know that it will be helpful for our listeners. So thank you, Jimmy. No problem. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.